Hello? Hello. Is Charlie Charlie there? I'm sorry? Um Yeah? Is Charlie there? Who? Charlie. My dog? Yeah. You want to talk to my dog? Yeah. Just for a second. Who is this? I found him. I brought him back there to you. Just wanted to make sure he got back there. He's back, yes. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, can I talk to him? I'm not... I'm not following you. I just want to talk to your dog for a second. Big fucking deal. Who is this? Did you just call someone's dog? Yeah. A little bit. All right, welcome to another edition of McMillan Men. This is the show where we talk about the Amazon Prime series, Patriot. I'm Luke Burbank. Right over there is fellow McMillan man and big breakfast with the breakfast breads enthusiast, Andrew Walsh. Hello. Et cetera. Boy, we are in <laughs> peak, peak Patriot right now, I think. This is such yes. a good episode. Whole ball of wax. Whole <laughs> ball of wax. It's episode seven. Is Charlie there? So you just heard John trying to call a dog. That is about, that is, and, and I haven't finished the whole series, obviously, but that is as broken as I've, as I've heard John being maybe mm-hmm. on the show. Like, he's a guy who's not great at acting like he's having a wonderful time. As my wife often says to me, are you having a killer time when she can tell that I'm really not enjoying something? <laughs> John's really bad at pretending to have a killer time. Ironically, he is a killer. But um, uh, but in this case, he is especially bad at it. When he calls that dog, he is just, you can tell he's at his, really at his breaking point. Uh, let's, let's start at the beginning, a very good place to start, though. This episode opens on the, on the, the puppet show, Numi's puppet show, talking about the old thief and his daughter. And uh, all of the things that he's piled on her. And what I realized in watching this, Andrew, was that last week's episode of Macmillan Men, I was sort of trying to... We were doing the thing that I think we do a lot, where we are blending episodes together because the narrative jumps around so much. This this episode basically starts weeks ago. This sets up a bunch of stuff that was going on around the first trip to Luxembourg that we had no idea about, including um, Numi's character... Being doing the puppet show right near where John is stabbing Dennis in the leg to get him to leave him alone. There's all these overlaps that we as the viewers don't realize when we're watching like episode one. Isn't it funny how the the stabbing scene, when seen in the background without multiple shots, it seems so much different. It seems more brutal to me. It happens so quickly. It almost made me want to go back to episode one, I guess it would have been, uh, where Dennis gets stabbed by John and, and rewatch it to see if they would actually line up as far as tempo is concerned. I had the same thought. This is such a boring, I guess, filmmaking question, but I was wondering, because this happens fairly frequently on the show, where there will be a scene that you then see later on from a different person's perspective, and I always wonder that the the scene where we're seeing the stabbing, uh, you know, we're looking past the puppet box and we're seeing the stabbing, was that the same shot that we saw in the first episode? Probably not because of just like the specifics of how cameras have to be placed. And in order to get the shot that we see in episode one, there's a whole camera crew that's right next to them, which can't be there when we see the shot from near the puppet theater. So, but I'm, I'm always curious about that too. And how close do they actually get it? And, and if you side by sided it, how different would they actually look? And of course, to go back to the puppet show, the very, very first shot, I, I, I cannot, I know I say this every episode probably, but I'm just loving watching this a second time through because by the first time, by episode seven, the first time I watched this, I knew enough to trust the show that things do make sense and things pay off, which is really important when you're working with a show that is messing with the timeline and reality so much. But I was also 
very confused as to what exactly was happening in a lot of these things in episode seven. And now everything makes sense. One thing that um, is right there at the beginning, which I guess I'm sure this was not lost on me the first time around, is we open up on Numi's puppet show, although we don't know that she's a puppeteer artist until until this moment. And what is the story that she is telling with her puppets? But a child Mm -hmm. and her parent, (laughs) her dad, her father, who just keeps literally Loading more and more things onto his child's back until his child cannot take it anymore. Sound familiar? Right. The, the the line, I don't want to read too much into it, but the line that I was mystified by was, she says in the puppet show, until one day the father stopped asking if she could bear the weight, mm-hmm. and then he kept piling things on her, and then the pain in her stomach went away, which I don't know what I don't know what the implications of that are, but... It's not because things are getting better for that character. (laughs) Right, right. Like, usually it's like, oh, good, the tummy pain is gone. No, no, this is not in a good way. Yeah. Um, So so then we we see how we get the full, like, description or full explanation of how Numi's character starts to overlap with Lawrence LaCroix. As I had kind of – I'm sure I didn't describe it perfectly uh, accurately, but as I would kind of remembered – Basically, she and her friend are get hired to perform a weird but not specifically sexual thing on Lawrence LaCroix of whipping him with the Twizzlers. I really love his description of all the other things that he's tried mm-hmm. being whipped by and the, the the drawbacks of those various other items. But she's – as I kind of had speculated, I don't think that she's really an escort. She's a puppeteer. Um, but she's willing to go whip someone with Twizzlers for 300 euros, half of the total payment. But that's what puts her in the lobby of the hotel, which is where she sees um, Kandahar uh, drop the money. And that's where she hatches this plan to get to separate him from that bag of money. Right. And we st- so things are really, really clicking into place here. But we still don't know how her passport ended up in his safe. Right. We're still waiting for that to pay off. Right. Um, what we know is that she runs to the elevator or whatever, hustles to the elevator. She comes up with an excuse to use his phone and then use that whole thing as a pretext to have the staff show up. And I mean, you know, like, look, Kandahar is a, it's interesting actually what the show is doing because you know I mean he's ultimately trying to get money to somebody who's going to um you know arm Iran with a nuclear weapon which I guess we're going to assume is a bad thing I mean not if you live in Iran probably but you know between his sort of childhood as a J, as a as a much uh, maligned Jaywick Sands fan who gets shit on by even the players on Jaywick Sands um and then a guy who really didn't do anything to this character and she's like showing up with the staff, like, and, and I forget the exact line she says, but it's you know something that she's clearly rehearsed in English to try to describe the horrible way that he's treated her, which of course didn't happen. And it's kind of creates this environment or this this narrative where I'm like, I feel kind of bad for the dude because he didn't really do anything, obviously. Yeah, and, and the show does a good job of showing him as a kid and his loving relationship with his brother, and like, yeah. it's really heartbreaking. In the we see a shot of him, uh, his brother, I should say. Um, who's I, I like his style, his whole his whole thing he's got going on. Uh, putting yeah. up um, lost posters around Luxembourg yeah. because his brother is missing, and it really does pull at the heartstrings. I mean, this is where the show is doing a good job of taking a character that might seem two dimensional when we first meet it, and then really fleshing it out and and seeing various perspectives on things. Yeah, that's a really good point, and and. One that I'm sure many of the listeners have already figured out, but I think it wasn't even really occurring to me till you said it. This idea that like part of why this show is so different to me than other spy shows, and I can't remember last week was a little bit of a blur for me if we talked about it, but I have been having these flowing conversations about Patriot with all kinds of people, and I've been finding out that all kinds of people either like the show and were surprised it wasn't a bigger hit or – Averred from watching the show because of the exact PR stuff we've talked about, the name of the show, the 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 uh, photographic assets around the show. But anyway, one of the things that makes this show so different than what a lot of people assumed it would be is that the bad guys are not just robo bad guys, mm-hmm. or at least in the bad guy in, in the in the character of Kandahar. And I think we could throw in um, 
the the physicist's wife as well. You know, these are people that are, have their own hopes and dreams, mm-hmm. as is like you know obviously the case. But we we do tend to a lot of times in the less in the less nuanced American entertainment sphere, just the bad guys are the bad guys, and they're one dimensional, and they just they're Ivan Drago from Rocky. They must break you uh, instead of being. Uh, uh, <laughs> this would be such a cool reference if I could now remember the actor who played Ivan Drago, uh, who I'm forgetting off the top of my head, who was also in the live-action He-Man movie, which is uh, Dolph Lundgren, by the way, is his name. Oh, right. I was going to say, he's not it's, – it's, instead of being Ivan Drago in Rocky, he could be Dolph Lundgren in He-Man, <laughs> uh, which I did see in the theater as a young child. All right, sorry. So, yeah, um, uh, we then we get the credits, and then – this was I really appreciated uh, so much about this episode, but part of it was it gave me a much better understanding of what the frick is going on with Tom Tavner and why he is probably using his kids to be part of this, uh, leaning on them so heavily and kind of why he's being the way he's being. Uh, and it's because he's basically by his own admission and to his credit, he's pretty open about it. He's royally fucked this up and it just keeps getting worse and it's it's getting quickly out of his ability to control uh, kind of what goes on with this whole project. He basically – I guess this is the first time I've had some empathy for Tom Tavner in his job because it was only upon second viewing that it really sunk into me. This whole thing that like his job is to basically pitch higher-ups on projects and then be told no because the higher-ups want to be able to disavow the initiative – later if it goes wrong and then his job is to just ignore their advice and keep heading forward with the project and keep reporting progress so they can keep saying no so they're never on the hook for anything what a bullshit job to have yes now i I kind of knew that i knew that the reason he was using his own family was because he was operating kind of in a gray area of the law that he was expected to take care of problems, but he, he didn't have the official approval of the U S government. And I, I kind of remembered all of that. I did not remember the exact scene where he lays it all out. How, as a matter of fact, I, I almost wonder, should I play it? Him just, he's talking to a colleague here who is in a different department somewhere who he's asking special favors for, um, to get him out of this bind and he's trying to explain how he's told no all the time in his job but he has to interpret what each no really means because sometimes a no is a yes and sometimes Mm -hmm. a no that's a yes is retroactively a no right if anything goes wrong i'm gonna try playing a little bit of this hopefully this is the right place of course no i'm mostly here no then mostly I'm expected to proceed quietly but this time wow Tim it unraveled quickly unraveled? yeah and you put it back together? I'm trying ordinarily I have time to ordinarily I make progress when I'm told no and then I go back with the progress and I ask again and again I'm told no but it's nowhere I'm expected to keep going this time, if I go back with no progress, with backward action, then I'm told no. Well, that actually means no. It also makes the no that I first got, which wasn't really a no, a real no. <laughs> like, it's such good writing. It's funny, but it's real. It does make you empathize with him, as you said. But I also think there's an irony in this, because as you've been um, getting more and more frustrated with yeah. Tom and his actions and, and saying, you know, and pointing out how selfishly he's kind of treating his kids, I've been saying, yes, but he's he and the kids realize what's at stake here. And it's like, you know the security of the free world as they see it and and making sure that Iran does not get a nuclear weapon. But now in this scene, we're also realizing that, or maybe not realizing, but it's explicit that he also now is fighting for himself. It's not just the higher good of world peace, but also now if this goes sideways, they get the bomb potentially and he goes to prison for 30 years, which actually introduces a little bit more selfishness into his goals. Yeah, I guess it's always been hard for me to identify with his character because I just would never agree to do this shit. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just such a crap job. And honestly, it's like, look, 
And I guess that the threat is less extant to the U.S. than it is to Iran uh, in terms of – or excuse me, to Israel in terms of if Iran becomes nuclear. But at some point I'd be like, not my monkeys, not my circus. Like, I'm <laughs> sorry. I cannot single-handedly stand between the, uh, Iran, you know, Iran getting an, a nuclear weapon and continue to put my kids in danger and possibly go to jail and basically say no to – you know, politician types and another, you know, deep state types who don't want to take responsibility. Like, I'm tired of being, you know, I'm tired of being the fall guy for all this shit. <laughs> like, that would be my response. I am, to the degree that Tom Tavner is overly loyal, I am the exact opposite. I got none of that in me. Uh, Ye- and so. Yeah, but honestly, out of anybody I've ever worked with or maybe even known in my life, but let's like limit it to worked with. There's nobody who I think is more comfortable interpreting the variations of no than you. <laughs> and I mean that as a, as a compliment. Them. Yeah. And just like <laughs> taking everything as a suggestion as opposed to a rule or a policy. <laughs> that is true. Okay. That is a similarity between me and Tom and our beautiful head of hair. Although mine is mostly <laughs> yes. a powder at right. this point. If I looked... Like Terry O'Quinn with a shaved head, I'd be right there. Yeah. We've already established he's one of the more handsome shaved shaved hair men working today. Uh, and, okay, so um, as we heard in that intro and as the title of this episode would indicate, um, John does kind of hit this breaking point where he gets in the elevator. He needs to just stay out of elevators because mm-hmm. every time he gets in an elevator, something bad happens. His dad's like, where's the bag? And then this is right after he bumps into Ichabod, who tells him, I've got my list of demands ready. And it just kind of, you know, it just all gets on top of him. And that's when he basically goes to the park bench and tries to call Charlie the dog. Yes. And um, it you know, there's all I mean, this is this is such a beautiful episode because there's so many good uh like I, we get to we get to know the HR guy. Um, I guess his name is Gregory. Yes. You want to talk about where yeah. John? I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. But you want to talk about where John seems the most broken? I think even more than him talking to Charlie the dog on the bench is a couple of scenes later when he enters Gregory's office. He can yeah. barely speak. Like I've never yeah. heard an actor actually use the English language, but really have it be reduced to almost a moan, a low level yeah. grumble. He has yeah. he is a broken man. And and we're kind of introduced to or getting to know more of this HR guy, Gregory, who wants him to know that he is a he's a human resource. He wants to focus on the human and he wants to help yeah. he he wants to help John. And the scene where they're in the pipe together, he's like you want to take five minutes? And then we see them both like chilling in the pipe. Like how did they both decide that this is the position they're going to take for this HR meeting to basically be both laying down on their backs in this pipe, just chilling like a couple of bros. Yeah. The HR guy is actually great. Like it really honestly is the best case scenario. If you're dealing with annoying HR hoops, Yeah, like we should all be so lucky as to actually work with this guy because he's really like, he's, he's, because Charlie, uh, you know, because Charlie can't come to the phone right now. This is literally the like the only other person that this is just this is just a little piece of wood floating by in the water that John jump uh, grabs onto to try to stay at least slightly above the water line. Because this is a person who, even though his ultimate goal is to get the proper social security number to get John integrated into the McMillan HR system, he's also willing to listen to him. And when he walks into his office, like you said, and he's like, "I don't have any of the I don't have any of the shit you need." <laughs> it's like, it's you're right. He is just like. He's so desperate at that point uh, that he just, you know, and then it's very sweet. And the thing about, you know, taking up magic tricks and stuff, and it's all kind of good advice, actually. You know, as much as I'm somebody who chafes very much under, like, the bureaucracy of working for a big company as we do and the things that are mandatory related to HR and team building, I never like any of that. Honestly, this guy sitting in that pipe with John is probably something that keeps him from ending at all. So here's a hat tip to the uh, to the people that put the human in human resources all over America. And talk about being kind of textured as far as characters are concerned. He's the HR guy is introduced as kind of a two dimensional HR guy. A lot of people who work in companies like ours don't like usually love the idea of interacting with HR. The HR is the butt of a lot of jokes in our culture. Um, and that's kind of how his character is originally presented a two dimensional HR guy who's just kind of like, you know, following all the 
all the little rules to make sure that all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. And now that we're getting to know him a little bit better, that's not going away. He's still a somewhat officious. Uh, uh, officious? That's not a word. Officious? Yeah. Officious. Um, he's still an officious HR guy, but he does have a heart and he really does want to help. And there's something about that scene in the pipe, which honestly must be one of my top three to five scenes in this entire series, um, is we see both sides of it simultaneously because he's trying to help John and he wants to help John, but he's also doing it like he's reading off of a form. If we offered you this, would you do this? Yes or no? He's like giving him a survey, sort of, except mm-hmm. he's doing it in the most casual and, I believe, loving way that he can do it. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's great. And, the, the, of course, the funny part is he is – what he's doing is he's basically unintentionally advising John on the job that is not at Macmillan Men. Yes. Good point. He's actually doing HR for the CIA. He's doing HR for the CIA because he's like, do you feel like you have the tools that you need to do your job? No. Okay, well, we're going to look into that. Right. And it's like, I can't even get a chair, you know, my other job. It's like he's he's become like the CIA needs to up their HR game, although I guess John's not officially on the rolls for them for this. So maybe that's part of the issue. I mean, that's another funny part of this. I love the intersection of just mundanity and high stakes. This guy that you know this kind of a weirdo guy that is his fixer at home who's in charge of you know taking the brakes off of his bike and putting electrical tape on it it's like we're out of money i'm not allowed to spend my own money on buying you shampoo so i brought my home stash which is prel which is the same thing Mm -hmm. that john uses which is a problem because that's what steven has been smelling so it's like just the little details of that like the cia guy being like yeah, we're, our budget is blown, so I'm not, and I'm not allowed to go buy you. By the way, that's an annoying answer. Just buy the effing shampoo if you care, or shut up about it. But don't mm-hmm. act like you were going to buy the shampoo, but you can't because the rules are are, are stopping you from doing it. Yeah, um, of course. Bring you, if this stuff is stuff that you brought for your own shower, well, then buy your own, take one shower with right. it, and then bring it to John. What's the difference? If you have to. Um, I also was thinking to myself, I guess the idea is that John is... Here's okay. I don't know why I'm gonna drill down on this, but if I have the timeline right, John has just flown back from Luxembourg. He lands, he gets to his house really quickly. He's talking to his his sort of like uh, coworker. The guy is saying, "All I have is Prell." Now, was John washing his hair with Prell in the hotel in Luxembourg? I guess I assume that that's just his hotel. Or I'm sorry, the shampoo that he just takes with him everywhere. That that's just kind of his brand. Yeah. Because I was like, I kept thinking of ways that John could have thrown Stephen off the scent. <laughs> I was like, what if you just don't wash your hair? Do you still have Luxembourg shampoo in your hair? Like, but it is, but it's, but it's still whether or not it's uh, uh, super tightly, you know, consistent. It's a great device because it, of course, is why he has to just roam and wander. Uh, the Macmillan property, because being near Stephen is going to create this amazing ending scene. The last smell that I smelled is the smell I'm smelling now. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Boy, talk about an episode that ends on it. I mean, I know they all kind of end on some Ooh. sort of a cliffhanger, but this one is so ominous. And you just in that moment where you see him walking closely behind him, like and you think he's just going to like take a skillet and bonk him on the head again, like. There is something about John. I know we already kind of explored this, but like he's got so much empathy to the people that he sometimes has to act cruel towards. Yet I just think that the Steven character somehow he just like all of the frustration he has with the people that he can't say no to and can't just throw under a bus. He just wants to do that to Steven. For some reason, like Steven is now the focal point of all of his frustration and anger. And he per- he perpetually lives in the world with Steven that he entered with Dennis um, under the in, in the tunnel where he said, like, the things you think I can't do, I'll do them or whatever. Like where he got real with Dennis about if he needs to eliminate him, he will. Like he's perpetually trying to eliminate Steven. I mean, not literally kill him, but like. I don't know if he just sees Steven as not a full human anymore because of his brain injury or what, but it's like, you're right. Steven is is in a special area for John where he has zero compunction about just totally fucking that guy over. Mm-hmm. And you start to feel it yeah. as the viewer, right? And it might not be right, yeah, I thought, but you just feel it. Just yeah. like, get rid of that guy. 
Well, I just was wondering because again, I've watched this now these episodes it's the second time for these ones, and I but clearly I've forgotten a lot. May have been pretty drunk the first round, and I'm like I was thinking the same thing. I was like, is he gonna just like is he gonna like uh, put him in a headlock and drag him into a conference room or something? Like you just because you can see that that he needs to interrupt Stephen from walking around the office saying this thing about the smell I smelled is the smell I'm smelling now. And so you're just like, well, Steven's going to probably die right now, right? And he doesn't. He gets to his spot, and then he gets his weird – like the relationship, we talk about it a lot between uh, Steven's therapy person, Allie O'Donnell, and Steven is so funny because she's such an asshole to Steven, but then if you're mean to Steven, she's an asshole to you. Yeah, yeah. Like it's kind of that thing where you can talk shit about your mom, but if someone else talks shit about your mom, then you're mad at them. Like – She's very mean to Stephen, but 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 you know, woe to the person that does anything mean to Stephen because now she turns her anger. She's not very emotionally regulated. She's in a <laughs> no, bad job. I she's think not. bad job fit. Yeah, probably, probably. Oh, let me uh, kind of, I guess, jump back a little bit to um, to to Edward coming up to John when he's on the bench trying to call the dog, and there was a line in there I wanted to get your interpretation of, which was. Uh, where Edward says, um, you know, uh, you're like, you're not going to, they're not going to catch you because, you know, John's worried about a get honing in on him, homing in on him. I think that's homing. one of those ones I never know what the, um, like, I guess that would make sense, like a homing pigeon. Um, he says, you know, you're not going to, it's going to be fine because you didn't do it. What, is that just like, I mean, what is, what is he trying to say with that? Literally something I wanted to work out with you too. I think that's a little, my, my take is that it's slightly open to interpretation, but I think it's really an interesting line. And I we see John's face. He looks confused and then yeah. sort of bemused or maybe amused. Um, and I think we're supposed to think that John is wondering the same thing that we are wondering. Is Edward saying that because he really is that naive or is Edward saying that because he is the opposite of naive? He's saying in a very knowing way, saying like, as far as we're concerned in this reality, you are innocent. And I, I think that I like to think it's the latter. And I like to think that it's John kind of going through that same mental kind of progression that you as the viewer go through. The latter being he's naive? No, I'm sorry. The latter being that he's actually saying it in a knowing way. At first, you're kind of like, mm. oh, come on. Cool, Rick. Are you really that naive? And then a second later, you're like, oh, no. He's what actually the knowing the, the game. He's, he knows. He's uh, saying to John, like, you're innocent. That's the mindset you need to be in. That's the mindset I need to be in. And as far as we're concerned, you're innocent. So don't worry about it. Give me a high five because you're awesome. Oh, see, I... Oh, that's interesting. I assumed the whole time that Edward knew that he did it and that Edward is just either setting something up like because we're going to like blame it on someone else or because I'm going to take the fall for you or because like I didn't even occur to me that there was any that Edward actually would literally think he didn't do it like he's that simple. That's so funny. I was just trying to figure out what larger plan oh, that I was see. indicating or if Edward was just trying to be like Edward's even though he's kind of a shit dad because his dad is a shit dad, I think um, he is pretty good at talking to his son. And this felt to me almost like he's talking to John the way he would talk to his kid. Hmm. Give me a high five. Why? Because you're awesome. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. It's not going to be a problem because you didn't do it. Like it's a very, it's kind of a, just like a childlike way of talking about the world. Like it's going to be fine because it's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. So I, my wife, like the number one thing I can say to make my wife not feel confident about a situation is me saying it's going to be fine. She's like, <laughs> you always say that. It's never fine. Like don't just say it's going to be fine. Don't just say it's going to be fine because that's less scary than the reality. And I, I guess I'm kind of – I was wondering if that's what he was doing or if he had – like I said – for some bizarre reason, what went through my mind was this idea that, like, Edward was going to, if need be, fall on his sword over it. But, like, yeah. that wouldn't even make any sense either. And he's got a a kid and a life. So I don't know. I just – I took some comfort in that. But then I was kind of like, but why? And then when he gives the high five, that's just one of those, like, team-building things that's 
I don't know. I can't tell if that's exactly what John needed or if that was kind of cold comfort in that moment. I feel like John gives a little smile there. I'm always watching for John's smiles, like little yeah, like little sun breaks through the clouds. Um, and by the way, I want to reiterate, I could be completely wrong about that. all that shit I just babbled about how we as the audience interpret it and then is John interpreting it the same way and are we supposed to question his naivete? I could be completely off base on that, but that's what I was thinking in the moment. There's definitely an intentional there's an intentional beat or two that, you know, John we see John on camera trying to process what he just said. Mm-hmm. So there's that's I don't think you're overly reading into that. Now what we're supposed to be interpreting, maybe that's maybe that's up to the interpretation of the audience. Um, now, uh, the other thing that we get some clarity on is what was the thing that Alice Tavener heard that caused her to become, well, I guess it's sort of two things, but we had seen the scene where Alice is walking and listening to that tape from John, but we don't know what's on the tape. Um, and then I think we find out in this episode that it's him singing a song that lays out his suicidal bike riding, uh, uh, hobby that he's developed. And I guess it would be a combination of that and Edward legit. Well, may, you know what? I might be confusing things here because in terms of the timeline, what do you think sends her to the DMV to get her fake ID made? Which, by the way, nice spy chops. Um, I don't know if she's uh, because I haven't seen the whole show. I don't know if she ends up just, you know, like side by side with John spying it up. But she certainly showed some real abilities there at the DMV. Um is is that what drives her to the DMV? Is it the call from Edward saying you 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 told me to tell you if he's not okay, or is it what she was listening to on the headphones? I don't know. I don't have a clear answer to that either um, because I had the same question in my head with the timeline kind of chopping around. It's unclear if that telephone message that we hear, or the telephone call that we hear is um, kind of where that is in time. But because we definitely see her walking in that previous episode and then having kind of a light bulb go off while listening to the yes. headphone. So that clearly is an important moment, whether or not uh, Cool Rick had called her earlier or that was the final straw she turns well, around goes home and then he gets the call yeah i guess it's also two things one is i'm riding my bike in traffic and the other is he's trying to call a dog so maybe uh the song is is concerning but you know oh and by the way i thought about that song do you want to play that song a little bit of it even though it's kind of downbeat I thought it was really interesting in the larger context of the show. Yeah, this is the the Charles uh, Charles Grodin song. Yeah, yeah. sure. Okay, here, yeah, the Midnight Run song. Yeah, here I think that's right here. There's something I have to tell you. I haven't told you. And it's going to scare you. There's this actor named Charles Grodin He's smart and charming with an easy going by He was in this movie I would disagree with that premise, but okay Which is why they named this crazy bot race after him That I can't stop doing I've been riding my bike at night Red lights and stop signs and railroad tracks Against these crazy messenger guys In between buses and oncoming traffic Sweetheart, I guess I want to say If I get hurt real bad that would be okay. So I think it's like they're used to him being well, in yeah, danger. Wait, like this is the part oh. of this. Yeah, but can you let this part go too? Because this is the part that I think is there be nothing to fix, hold, or fold. Nothing to lift, or find, or transfer. Nothing to sleep on, or remember. Nothing to hide, forget, or figure out. Nothing to conceal or carry, break, wear down, wear out, 
Berry, sweetheart. You know what he's describing there is the opposite of the structural dynamics of flow. Hmm. Like, you know, he is talking about that. He is he does not want to get things from A to B anymore. He doesn't want to deal with any of the things you have to deal with when you're trying to move things from A to B. And were he to die, if it meant he could stop trying to fold things and bury them and fix them and do all of the – if, if he could stop trying to make things flow, that would be a huge relief to him. That's what I took from that song. And I think it has to do with his work, but I also think that it's like – it's just a suicidal thought that I think anybody who's in that Everybody's mindset sad. has, yeah. even if they're not trying to save the world by killing people right. and putting themselves in, in harm's way. And I think that's where – um, both Alice and Edward realize, oh, we're in new territory here and we do have to break the rules because we're not just worried about him being a super spy who's in harm's way. He is harm. <laughs> he's he's in his own yeah. harm's way and he's going to harm himself and wants to... He just doesn't... He can't handle this anymore. Yeah. And you don't blame him. It's just like... You know, it's and again, considering that, like, it's one thing if he was robbing banks and this happened because uh, he was trying to enrich himself illegally. It's like he is. And even the Tom Tavern stuff is interesting to me because the way he's talking about it, if you just dropped in on the show and you didn't know the backstory, you would think this was a show where Tom Tavner embezzled millions of dollars from the U.S. government is trying to not get caught. It's like. He's not enriching himself either from any of it. It's like that's what's sort of so um, – I don't know. That's why it's even more dispiriting because he did – like John didn't do anything to bring this on himself. And he's not even benefiting from it other than – he's benefiting from it as much as anyone else who doesn't get blown up by a nuclear weapon in mm-hmm. Iran that Iran has get benefits. Everybody who he walks past on – Stephen Chu for that matter. Although that's a bad example because Stephen Chu pays a steep price for being part of this universe. But like – it's just so unfair because he's not – this is not of his making and it's not something where he's getting some benefit. He's just trying to, you know, get through life and just all this shit is happening to him. Um, you know, it's – it's. I understand why he's as depressed as he is. Yeah, and I guess this is why I say I feel like this episode is peak patriot right here because – we are now understanding enough about the world. Things are clicking together and they're making sense, but also the stakes, we're understanding how high the stakes are. And maybe the stakes are even getting higher as we do this. And yet in this particular episode has some of the lowest lows as far as his mental health is concerned. Mm-hmm. And just like you empathizing with him, but also some of the, I think some of the most charming and hilarious scenes, like with the, you know, with the, the talk of, uh, of how Lawrence likes to be whipped and the HR guy just kind of, uh, chilling in the pipe with him. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. Uh, well, uh, I just have a kind of bullet points here talking about Tom having bad luck with people dropping dead right after they agree mm-hmm. to help him. Mm-hmm. Um, I like uh, it when he also, says to his friend, he's like, can you help me now? Mm-hmm. Because you're probably next. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, we sort of, well, there's, okay. <laughs> there's, we learn why the structural dynamics of flow book was missing from the Luxembourg library, because we find out that it's sort of an anchoring thing for Leslie. Um, as he explains to the bartender slash, uh, AA compatriot of his, mm-hmm. co-AA attendee. Um, weird place for her to work, but okay. You know, Jesus well, went to the temple. I assume to he's to the money an NA, right? Narcot- Narcotics Anonymous. Oh, good point. Good point. Um, yeah, because I guess it was cocaine that was his his big issue. Although, you know, he does want things that close to stay closed. So let's just say <laughs> oh, that is true. booze may not be, yeah. but it may also not be great for him. But right. he's explaining to that uh, woman at that kind of weird work bar, uh, why he g- checks that book out from libraries when, when he uh, when he sees it in the world. So that's a thing that we learn. The, the book thing gets kind of revealed, and then, oh, God, <laughs> talk about the Rosencrantz, the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern <laughs> right. of this freaking show, man. <laughs> well put, Just exactly. Two dinguses <laughs> from a pod, man. That actually wouldn't be a bad name for this show. Oh Just like two God. dinguses in a pod cast. Yep. Uh, Dennis and Edward. Dennis trying to create this cover story for his herpes. It's just so geniusly terrible. I love it. 
Yeah, so the, uh, I guess Dennis decides that he's going to cr- make a video message for his wife, and he's just going to do it in some pub. And for some reason, he's not good at holding his camera, so we don't see his infected mm-hmm. lips. We only sure. see his eyes. But then in the background, as he's leaving this just loving check-in via video uh, for his wife, recording it on his phone, we see, oh, there's a character choking in the background. Now, we know that that's cool Rick, but the wife doesn't know that. And so Edward's back there fake choking and then actually can we just listen to the and then he pretends like he has to give him mouth to mouth and that's how he's going to get the herpes i think he even says oh no this herpetic stranger or something along the well, lines of the- yeah the funny part is it's such a dumb it's such a idiotically dumb way to try to cover this story but i almost think he could have gotten away with it if he doesn't <laughs> In the initial, because I have, I'm a sketchy person, so my sketch brain is analyzing this for <laughs> would this actually work. I'm not saying I've ever tried something like this, but I'm saying I've tried something in the neighborhood <laughs> of just like elaborate bullshit stories to cover for some bullshit. And I'm almost like he he ruins it by when when Edward goes into when Cool Rick goes into his fake choking that he looks across and he says, you know, um, he literally calls out the herpes then. I mean, this is why the show is entertaining. But in my mind, if he doesn't do that, he could almost have maybe gotten away with it. I just think don't tape it. If you're going to yeah. go with the story, right. just tell the yes. story. It's more un- yes. by, by trying to make it more believable. You're making it. So- yes. I mean, listen, if you come home from a business trip and you're traveling all the time and you tell your partner or your spouse, or whatever, Hey, I have herpes. Um, but it's because I was in a bar and somebody was choking and I had to. And first of all, you wouldn't even give him mouth to mouth in this situation. I mean, it's such a bad plan. I mean, you you would give him oh, the yeah, Heimlich maneuver choking. from behind. He's choking. Yeah, that's he's not. not a, I didn't even think about yeah, that. No, that's it's not a mouth to mouth situation. And of course, oh uh, he drops the phone. Quote unquote, drops the phone. So you never actually you just see their feet while he's supposedly giving him mouth to mouth. But you wouldn't give somebody mouth to mouth to dislodge something from their gullet. Uh, those two, man. When they get together, uh, <laughs> cancel your afternoon plans because some some dumb shit's going to go down. Let, let me talk about. Let me ask you this: Have you seen? I th- I think it must be season two, but I'm not sure. And actually, I'm still very confused about what they even think they're trying to do. But have you seen up to the part where they're making more videos later on? These two. Oh, isn't there one like in the hot tub or some kind yeah, of right before like the that? hot tub? They create uh, some oh, yeah. sort of a hot, a oh, fake yeah, corru- hostage like, situation, which never oh, right. Which yeah. I, the first time I watched it, I was like, "Wait, does that make sense? What do they think they're doing?" I was really confused about the cause and effect and what they imagined to be the cause and effect of what they were doing. But we can revisit that, or we will visit yeah. that when it happens. Let's just say that their iPhone filmmaking skills leave well they're both kind of ambitious and also leave something to be desired in terms of final product <laughs> they just remind um, me exactly of the stuff i made as a kid with my friend tony right. be like okay stop the camera here okay we're gonna get another angle dude i can see your glasses underneath the wig <laughs> uh-huh. we did peter williams and i uh we were constantly trying to make fake uh what we call them fake karate movies and what we were obsessed with was we had figured out this technique that we were very proud of which was the, because all of the martial arts movies that we saw had been dubbed, redubbed in English. So there was, of course, that like – and it was a, you know famously a trope about those movies that the, the, the voiceover doesn't match. So the you know, guy's talking, but the, the sound is not matching. So we figured out a system where the person who was holding the camera would actually be speaking – and the person who was being filmed would just be trying to keep up with the person speaking mm-hmm. so that it would put it out of sync, which, you know, is probably not the dumbest idea of all time. So we would always be trying to shoot these these like these kind of movies like that. But we would also always set up these elaborate scenes. We set up this one where he was supposed to be the sort of like, uh, you know, the, the, ma- the master, if you will. And he was sitting surrounded by lit candles. This is in the basement. And then I'm trying to snatch the pebble from his hand, which is also a famous trope of those kinds of, like, you know, Kung Fu, the David Carradine, you know, snatch the pebble from my hand. And then he was supposed to say something really serious to me. He could never not laugh. And then I would start laughing. We also, by the way, had on these ridiculous, like, I guess we were doing sort of like Asian face at the time, but whatever. We were eight-year-old kids. We had, like, fake, like, mustaches on and this whole thing. We shot easily 30 attempts at this. But Master... Snatch or snatch the pebble from my hand, and I try to do it, and then he says something. We laughed every single time. I honestly think, you know, 
that if we just put that together, that could play at the Whitney Biennial. Those outtakes <laughs> could be some kind of high art piece. But um, but yeah, all of which is to say we may have put together something better than what Dennis and uh, Cool Rick made uh, yeah. of their of their hostage video. Anyway, uh, uh, the last couple of biggies from this episode, that as far as that I noticed, um, of course, is the fact that Leslie is now back in the big in the big show, whole ball of wax. Uh, Gil grabs him, brings him in, and you can just you know you don't have to be. Uh, you know, Califasane to to like in terms of being like a film reviewer to watch this and be like, okay, Leslie is psyched. Oh yeah, yeah. He's as as uh, Lawrence is explaining what deep shit they're in. Leslie, you can yeah. see his eyes getting wider and the Just smile. So but he's smart exciting. though. He's not. He's not over the top with it. But he is smiling, and then he just says his his classic. As I say, let's get to work. But I have one request. That's right. <laughs> As we see John skulking in the background. And then Lawrence is like, yeah, but can we wait till after the duck hunt? Because, you know, Lawrence peen or the distant possibility. I mean, listen, the thing with Lawrence and his weirdness is what you realize with the Twizzler thing is he's not having nothing. Se- well, I don't know. Maybe later it will be sexual for him as he reminisces about it. But, you know, the Twizzler thing is kind of not really sexual or or it's not classically as we think of what a sexual thing is it's not that and then you know this woman he's trying to impress by catching ducks she's got a boyfriend does he think that she's going to leave her boyfriend for him there's something about a certain kind of attention from women that he needs mm-hmm. whether or not there's even a like an end point to it like i don't think he realistically thinks She's going to see all those ducks and be like, now I want to date you, Lawrence. He's also married to the daughter of the owner of the company. Like, that's not an option for him. But there's yet it still is his driving thing. Like, he won't fire John until the duck hunt because he needs to bring more ducks back. Um, I'm a little confused as we're getting near the end here. So we see that... um um, I can't remember. I guess the the physicist's wife receives a phone call from somebody saying yeah. we have located the bag. Um, so I assume that they just the bag at this point is still in the um, police station, right? And we don't really know why or how the Iranians have identified or found the bag again. But they say we're going to recover it, and then uh, we're going to meet you, and you're going to. Uh, you're going to retrieve it from us. And then we see a shot of, is that one of the Brazilian brothers that we see walking down the street in the hoodie? Yes. One of the Barros brothers. And we don't know really how that ties into what they're talking about yet. Right. Right. Well, we know that that's $170,000 uh, is a problem because, uh, and as Tom's talking about, it's not the, and that's what they always say. It's not the uh, $11 million that gets you. It's the $170,000 from petty cash. Mm-hmm, right. Like, and that's to go to the Barros brothers to try to get them to stop uh, pursuing this whole situation. Um, and so I don't. Yeah, we uh, is the, is the Barros brother being sent to retrieve the money? I can't remember. I mean, the good news about my faulty memory uh, is that I am I am in a lot of ways experiencing this show for the very first <laughs> time too. too. I don't actually yeah. remember what happens with that Barros brother, but but yeah, she's she's going to stay. I almost expected her to do like a fist pump when. They, when he's leaving the message or when he's telling her on the phone, we need you to stay there because, you know, I'm going to assume a lot here, but I feel like this for her is a way better scene or at least it's a welcome break from the strictures of her normal life. As a woman in Iran, she gets to watch Disney movies. She gets to dip her feet in the fountain. She's probably psyched to be kicking it in Luxembourg for another couple of days. Yeah, her work trip was just extended, and that's great because she's not super yeah. psyched to go home. Um, and then I guess the next really big thing is we are now at the very n- near the end, but we're seeing that a Get is trying to book a flight and Alice is trying to book a flight, and we learn oh, that right. they are going to be sitting next to each other on this flight from Chicago to Milwaukee. They're both going to Milwaukee to see the same guy, but yes. they don't know it, and a get better not figure out that she's Alice. It's so... I've referenced before, but my friend John calls it being up a tree. Like, just the kind of, like, building... The building, like, tension and the building arc, uh, like, narrative overlaps, plot overlaps, where it's just like, I can't take it Mm -hmm. anymore. And it's like, at the point at which Aget and Alice are like, and this is going to be in the next episode, literally, like, arriving in Milwaukee, 
becoming great friends, parting company, and then about to re-intersect at McMillan or at the motel or wherever it is. It's like you almost, I just like, we can't go any higher in this tree. Yeah. this We're out of branches. We're at the top. And now it's that bendy part that I'm afraid of clinging to. Right, right. And then if it's a cartoon, the tree will bend all the way back over and you will end up in the bear's claws. Um, yes. So, yeah, that's where the show is, is good. I mean, it's it's got these moments of release, of, of comedy relief, I guess I should say, um, because you need it. Because otherwise, the show will literally kill you. Oh, also, Birdbath is now yeah, Birdbath uh, is made back. a real quick appearance. Um, and so that's, you know, just... Put that on a back burner. Yeah. Try to watch that and make sure it doesn't uh, catch on fire. And, um, and yeah, then as we've already talked about, um, Stephen is now saying for the whole office to hear and also his, his uh, facilitator, the, the, the smell that I smelled is the smell I'm smelling now. Mm-hmm. And like, what is going to happen with that? Because that's pretty damning. I don't think you have to be like, you know, <laughs> Columbo to figure out that that's a bad thing, even if you're just, you know, one of these random people at the office. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sir, just one more smell. <laughs> that was terrible. Nah, do we have titles terrible. for this? <laughs> we do. Just one more smell. <laughs> like it. That could be this episode. Uh, yes. Um, and then, of course, and then that's where it ends. So we'll find out how he's going to handle that situation. That was, And I really will. Like, I know because the show goes two seasons. I know that it's not like they don't, like, lock him up in jail for the rest of the, the rest of the show. But I can't remember how he, like, what the what the resolution of that is. So I will be watching with genuine interest uh, next week as we arrive at uh, episode eight. So let me just say one more it. thing because it's just worth mentioning. It's not a really great place to end, but playing ar- the writers playing around with this idea of to and fro. We hear two characters oh, say yeah. to and fro, to yes. and fro. And of course that plays into A to B. <laughs> A to B. The, right. The structural dynamics of Fro. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's, that's good. The, maybe that's the Did we go on. with the structural dynamics of no last week? Oh, week shoot. We stru- did. You're right. The structural yeah. dynamic. But I like it. It's a series. The structural dynamics of Fro. <laughs> and then um, next week will be uh, the structural dynamics of don't. <laughs> Actually, that's our Simpsons podcast. Yeah, stay tuned. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, we'll, uh, we'll check back in next week for episode eight of Patriot. Um, I don't think we have a special sign off for this, so just thank you and we'll see you here real soon. Oh yeah, we do. Keep it double good. That's what we do, right? That's right. Double great. Everyone double something. He stays a stranger with every move he makes, another chance he takes, odds are he won't live to Secret agent man, secret agent man They've given you a number and taken away your name And let me be clear, this is not a sexual thing. This is just a thing about liking to be whipped about the hamstrings, here and there, say.